nothing on the PowerPoint for the sermon, like I usually do, but uh, you can follow along. If you didn't get a bulletin, I know there's people looking around with the responsive reading. There's a bunch out there. There's probably two per person today. So, anyways, this is nice being the, um, over you guys, usually looking up now. A little powerful. All right. Well, it was nice. Uh, we actually didn't sleep in at my house. We can't sleep in at my house. Um, so we got up and we went to Cornerstone Chapel this morning. Saw a couple other Potomac Hills families there. It was fun. And uh, it was nice uh, hearing uh, Gary Hamrick. And, and he. Uh, one of the points he made as he was preaching through 2 Timothy was that there are some churches that have fallen away from preaching sound doctrine. And I studied about 45 or 50 hours of theology this week. So you guys, we're, we're good to go on that. All right, I, I probably only spent about four hours on my sermon, but theology, quiz me if you want later. So anybody else get up and go anywhere? No, come in here. Loyal. Good. I like that. All right, so does everybody have a little sermon outline? We'll see if we'll stick to that. Um, when I was a brand new youth director, I wasn't called a youth pastor back then. My first church I worked at, I took a bunch of high school kids to Tennessee for whitewater rafting. And uh, it was fun. We stopped on the way, though, at Cocoa Beach because we were down in Delray Beach, Florida, and we stopped in Cocoa Beach because Ron John's Surf Shop is there. And it's, it's an amazing place. Um, I happened to go back to the hotel room, though, a little earlier than, than the kids, and got a phone call. Hey, Dave, it's Nick. I got arrested at Ron John's. Come on over. Of course, I'm thinking it's a prank. But he assured me that, no, he was being uh, detained at Ron John's security, and uh, he had tried to steal a hat. And so I went over and got him out, and uh, that was literally the first trip I ever took as a youth director. And uh, so I learned a few things, bring more adults, the biggest one. Um, don't get arrested, a lot of things there. But it was a great opportunity, actually, for Nick and I to sit down and talk. Because I could tell Nick was kind of a fringe kid at our church. And he clearly had not heard the gospel clearly. And uh, so we, we spent, I mean, a captive audience. The kid was so guilty and, um, you know, felt so bad. He felt like he had to sit with me. And so, I, you know, I could sit him down for as long as I wanted. So we, we talked. And, but I remember one of the things he said as we talked was that he felt that he had a picture of heaven where whatever you really like to do on earth, you would get to do that in heaven, but to the max, right? So if you were a surfer, man, you were going to have the best waves and you were going to be able to ride them all and the best board, all right? If you were a, an academic, you could read all the books in Dave's library. You would have all that time. <laughs> He didn't say that, but um, if you were a musician, man, you had every instrument at your disposal and you were going to be a virtuoso on every one of them. And I didn't correct him. I didn't say, no, you're wrong, because I hope there's some truth in that. But I, what I did ask him was, Nick, 
where, where do you come up with that? Where do you get your information from? Where do you read that? Or did you just make that up? Well, yeah, it just seems like that's what God would do. That's what seems like what heaven should be like. And isn't that a lot of how we approach theology, but certainly heaven, and it's so easy for us to think, well, if, if I were God, that's how I would do it. So that must be how it's going to happen. And so Nick had made that his theology of heaven. And I think every society has its own vision of what utopia will look like, what heaven would be. Every person probably has an idea. Since we all had the hell scared out of us last week, if you remember, um, I'm hoping to motivate us with a vision of heaven this morning that will be majestic and glorious. Um, so let's, let's spend the next half an hour, 40 minutes, following Paul's directive in Colossians 3, verse 2, to set your mind on things that are above. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his... Did I already read that? Did I already read verse 7? I got lost. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There's a lot in this text this morning. I could have gone a lot of ways, and, and it's really true. You may hear preachers say it's harder to... Uh, winnow down and, and shape your sermon. Sometimes there's just so many ideas. You just got to cut them. So, um, but here's where we're going to go with this. The first, the first thing I wanted to uh, work through is that you see the word new throughout here. You see that God says there will be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and I am making all things new. So the first question we need to deal with is, 
kind of what we're talking about here. Is it new in the sense that God is going to replace what existed before? It sounds like the first heaven, the first earth, had passed away. And other parts of Scripture make it sound like earth gets destroyed at the end. And so is God just giving us a new thing because these things are no longer? Or are we talking about what ta God taking what exists, cleansing it, perfecting it somehow, the old nature is washed away, and then perfecting it and redeeming it, transforming it so completely, and us having a greater version of that. I think it makes a big difference when we think about heaven, whether God brings us to a new place completely that we don't have any frame of reference for, or if God is making the things we know new. So the foundation of the sermon, I'm going to choose that latter idea. The foundation of the sermon, if you don't get this, you're not going to understand a lot of it, is that God is not going to do away with the old things, but He will transform them into their glorious, eternal states. This applies to human beings. We've already sung, I am a new creation. The old has passed away. In our spirits, our souls, our bodies will be made new. Our relationships with each other and with God, the earth and heaven itself, we will have a new, transformed version of them, not completely new things. But I do want to throw a little disclaimer and caution here. Because even though I feel like um, this is what the scriptures present, I don't think we can be completely dogmatic about this, and I can't insist that this is absolutely right. Um, we saw in Revelation 20 that a thousand years isn't necessarily literally a thousand years, right? As true amillennialists we are. Um, but I think this is a conclusion that a lot of theologians have come up with. And uh, if you have any questions, ask Rich Coffeen, because he can probably explain it better than I can. So we're on, we're going to step out a little onto some limbs, and hopefully they won't break off. But uh, let's see where we go with this. Um, one of the theologians that I read the most for this sermon was a guy named Randy Alcorn. And he's a pastor in Oregon. He's got a book called Heaven that if you want to explore this idea more, it actually should be called The New Heavens and the New Earth because that's his theme throughout. And he just hits it from every different angle. So I would highly recommend that if you want to keep studying this. But a quote he says early on, The biblical doctrine of the new earth implies something startling. That if we want to know what the ultimate heaven, our eternal home will be like, the best place to start is by looking around us. We shouldn't close our eyes and try to imagine the unimaginable. We should open our eyes because the present earth is a valid reference. If the present earth so diminished by the curse is at times so beautiful and wonderful, if our bodies so diminished by the curse are at times overcome 
where the sense of the earth's beauty and wonder, then how magnificent will the new earth be? And what will, be, will it be like to experience the new earth in something else we've never known? Perfect bodies. So as, as we kind of go along this path, I want to um, distinguish, define a little bit what we're talking about here and give you what I understand to be kind of the order of things um, in the afterlife for a believer. I believe, as I think most Christians do, that when a believer dies, we go immediately into the presence of God. Right? Paul said, absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. There is no soul sleep. There is no purgatory. We go to a heaven and a glorious heaven. So while human history is still going on, heaven is the place where God dwells and people dwell with Him. I tend to think that we, we will have souls. I'm not sure about bodies at that point. Um, some of the things in the Scripture seem to say we will have bodies. Others, I'm not sure. The, the Westminster Confession simply says that our souls go immediately to the Lord. Our bodies rest in the grave until judgment. And so this heaven that is now, Randy Alcorn calls it the intermediate heaven. I'm not wild about that term. It makes it sound a little like purgatory. It makes it sound like it's second rate or something. But he says it for a purpose. And maybe I, I would call it the present heaven. But he calls it intermediate because he wants to distinguish it from what our final, what the final heaven will look like. And that's what we get here in, in Revelation 21. So we saw last week that there will be a judgment day. And all believer and unbeliever will stand before God and be judged and then sent to their eternal destination. And for believers, I believe that's where this text fits in. The new heaven and the new earth. It comes down from heaven and it comes to earth. It's interesting the phrasing that, that John uses in verse 3. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. I mean, usually we think, when I die, I will dwell with God. John says, God will dwell with us. And that, that may just be a way to say that God won't be far off, He will be with us. And we certainly acknowledge that. But I think it fits in with this whole idea that the heaven and the earth will be here on earth, merged in, in a mystery. But... Jim Gaffigan is a comedian. You guys might have heard his Hot Pockets routine. The teens love that. He has another routine, um, and i got to tell this one for the West Virginia people, um, for the team, our missions team that's in West Virginia. Um, he's talking about heaven, and he says, I hope heaven is awesome because we've really built it up down here. He's not a Christian comedian at all, but uh, he says... They might want to do something about the West Virginia slogan, though. Almost heaven, West Virginia, 
You, you telling me if, I, if I'm good and I die, I'm going to a place that's just a little better than West Virginia? I think I want to take another look at hell, he says. It's a funny bit, but you know, I think John Denver might have been on to something. Almost heaven, West Virginia. Um, not that heaven will be one state, but again, I'm, I'm drawing you to this idea that heaven will be a redeemed and glorified earth. That it will be a new heaven with that. But I don't think it will be totally foreign to our experience. So let me, let me work through a couple implications of this. And this is not the conclusion. This is the first half. But thinking through, why does this matter? I believe that the, the scripture doesn't say this totally directly, but I think we can pull out of this idea that the cultural mandate that was given in Genesis will still be in effect. You remember what, what God placed us here to do? He said, be fruitful and multiply. I don't think that part will still exist in heaven. We will not add physically or spiritually. We won't have to do evangelism or give birth, right? But in heaven, the cultural mandate to subdue the earth, to tend and cultivate the earth, is what we were created for. And I think we will still have meaningful work to do in heaven and without the curse of sin. Now, I know some of you are thinking, seriously, I have to work in heaven? I'm going to have a job? But think of it this way. When has an idea or some, an activity so captured you that you were just going to be so passionate about and pursue it no matter what? I think that's what our work will be in heaven. And we will be you know, have these new bodies that will be so much greater and our minds will be able to process so much and we will be able to use the whole earth. We may even be able to go out in space. Rich certainly hopes so. He's a space guy. We talked through the whole sermon and Rich told me that sometimes he gets these ideas and he knows he, it's not his calling, but he wants to pursue at some point and he says, I just got to hang it on the hook and say, that's, that's for eternity future. Hopefully, God's going to let me work on that in eternity. Another implication of this is that the creation itself is longing for this. Remember Romans 8, 19 through 21? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The earth will be ready for us. It will be the Garden of Eden again. And it will welcome us in our work I think another implication of this is that this will dignify the work that we do now. The works of our hand, I think, 
will persevere, will, will go with us into eternity if they are godly. Cornelius Venema is the promise of the future, is the book he wrote. He says, far from being an empty and desolate place, the new creation will be enriched with the sanctified fruits of human culture. Nothing of the diversity of the nations and peoples, their cultural products, languages, arts, sciences, literature, technology, so far as these are good and excellent, will be lost upon life in the new creation. Life in the new creation will not be a starting over, but a perfected continuation of the new humanity's stewardship of all of life in the service of God. I think that's a beautiful picture that the things we do for the Lord will endure and be there with us. And the last kind of implication I, I, I see in this is this idea that even if you weren't blessed this summer to go to Ireland or Scotland or Greece or all of these wonderful places that most of us didn't get to go to. <laughs> My top four vacations, Ireland, New Zealand, Switzerland, and Italy. Okay? But if I don't ever get to any of those... I think they're still going to be there waiting for me to come visit. And that we're going to be able to see them in greater depth and we're going to see them so much greater than they are now. And we won't have to worry about losing our passports or getting mugged or any of those things of travel. We will explore the creation. As Scotty Smith says, the Swiss Alps are a dull shadow of what is ahead. So now I'm going to step back from that limb where we didn't have as solid a foundation. And let's, let's deep dig into the rest of this. Um, I've really been dealing with that first verse, this idea of the new heaven and the new earth. Let's, let's see what else this text has for us as we work through it. Verse 2 talks about the new Jerusalem, the holy city. And I'm not going to spend much time because um, the rest of chapter 21 works this, the new Jerusalem out much more. So you're going to hear that in the next, next Revelation sermon. But think about how this imagery would have been accepted when John first wrote it. John is probably writing around 90 AD. Do you remember when Jerusalem was destroyed? 70 AD. So we've, we're, what a blow to Jews, to believers, to know that Jerusalem was gone. It's been 20 years that it's been gone, and yet, here John says, God has given me a vision that Jerusalem will endure, that the new Jerusalem will be there for us, and the new heaven and the new earth. And we have a bit of a mixed metaphor that, that Jerusalem is the holy city, now it's the the bride of Christ. And that puzzled me at first because Ephesians 5 says the church is the bride of Christ. I didn't know the church was Jerusalem. I was trying to work that out. But I remembered back, think back to how 
uh, Babylon is spoken of. Remember, John talks, spends a whole chapter saying, fallen is Babylon, because Babylon was a harlot and an idolater. And so the cities here take on the characteristics of the people that they represent. And so Jerusalem is the saints, the believers, and they are adorned as a bride, ready to be presented to her husband. And is there anything more beautiful than a bride on the day of her wedding? I remember standing at the front of the church during my wedding, seeing Kath come down the aisle. I was getting choked up, and the only reason I didn't lose it was because her dad had a wooden bow tie on. <laughs> and I had to keep it together for a different reason. It's a beautiful sight. And Jesus is having his bride presented to him. And we will be part of that. But you may have been confused as you read through this whole section, these verse, eight verses. What, what is our identity here? Because it seems to take us a few different places. Are we a bride? Verse 2. Are we a people? Verse 3. Or are we sons, children? Verse 7. Yes. Yes, we are. I think what John is doing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is drawing attention to the fulfillment of the covenants because this is very covenantal language scattered throughout here. Now, do you remember Abraham's covenant in Genesis 17 verse 8 says God says I will be their God. You got that right there. Verse 7, uh, verse 3. The Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David, 2 Samuel 7.14 says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. It's almost literally what the end of verse 7 says. The new covenant with Jeremiah, Jeremiah 30.22, God says, You shall be my people, and I will be your God. That's verse 3. They will be His people. God will be with them as their God. So the blessings of the covenant, all that God made, with God, God made with man, are all being fulfilled here in the new heaven and the new earth. And now we get to the most well-known part of this text, verse 4. If you don't know anything about, else about heaven... You probably have heard that there's streets of gold, probably first, and that there's no crying, right? And so we, this is a famous part. Verse 4, we, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So I think we get a picture of what heaven, what the new heaven, the new earth, will be like by seeing what is not there. I mean, let's, let's open this up a bit more. There won't be any more fighting for land, for possessions, for property. 
There won't be any conflict that threatens our loved ones. We will all submit to the Lord and acknowledge that everything is His. I mean, is human history not just a series of battles over land and territories? There'll be an end to that. There'll be no more jealousy, anger, no more covering up our insecurities, no more saving face. All of the parts of relationships that are so tricky that our relationships will be perfect. I so look forward to that. There won't be any manipulation, no guilt, no doubt, no fear. There will be no more pain in our physical bodies. No more aging, no more trying to keep our energy up. No need for wheelchairs. No lifelong debilitating conditions. We'll have all five senses. The, the deaf will be able to hear, the blind will be able to see, and I'll be able to smell. <laughs> no husbands will have to go off to war. No woman will, have, will know the pain of having to sell her body. No, no children will starve. No crowded emergency rooms. And have you thought about the fact that every single desire we have in heaven will be perfect? I mean, here we have mixed motives. We have immoral lust and addictions and just the things that pull us to and from. And we don't know, we can't trust our desires. And yet there... If you can think it, if you can imagine it, it won't be a sin. Now, how many of us have thought that heaven's going to be boring? You may not have told the pastor that. Maybe that creeps up. I mean, I've heard people, well, what are we going to do? Sit on clouds and... Sing, I could sing of your love forever. I mean, come on. Is that going to be a little boring? But David in Psalm 116, 11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy, pleasure, that doesn't sound boring to me. Again, quoting Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, our belief that heaven will be boring betrays a heresy that God is boring. There's no greater nonsense. Our desire for pleasure and the experience of joy come directly from God's hand. He made our taste buds, adrenaline, sex drives, the nerve endings that convey pleasure to our brains. Likewise, our imaginations, our capacity for joy and exhilaration were made by the very God that we accuse of being boring. Are we so arrogant as to imagine that human beings came up with the idea of having fun? Freedom from sin will mean freedom to be what God intended freedom to find far greater joy in everything.
So we come to verse 8, and as unnuanced as I can, basically the message is, if you're a rotten, filthy sinner, you can't come. And all the commentaries I read on this passage said, well, John is pointing out all of the people throughout the rest of Revelation, the first 20 chapters, who opposed God. And you look and you can see the, the murderers, the idolaters, the cowards, the faithless, all of those things that John lists at the end there. And their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And that's probably an accurate statement. John is probably saying, hey, everybody that threw their lot in with the beast, with, with Satan, is destined for the lake of fire. But has that last verse ever caused you a little heartburn? I remember when the, the first time I read that, I thought, really? Because I certainly see myself in there a little bit. Look back over that list. I know I'm cowardly and faithless, detestable, and as Jesus defines it, hating your brother, murder, sexually immoral in my thoughts. I'm a liar, adult, idolater, all those things. I mean, the point is we're all rotten, filthy sinners, aren't we? But I think the key to these verse is, this verse is that this is their identity. And you have a different identity in Christ. These are the people whose murder, their sorcery, all of those things have not been forgiven and washed clean. But you, who have been saved by Jesus Christ, have a new identity wrapped up in Christ. And His righteousness is credited to your account. That's the new song we, we, we're singing. This is who I am. I've been born again. And so you are not any of these things. If you were to go before God and say, God, I'm a liar. I'm faithless. I'm all those things on your list. He would say, I don't see it. Really, I'm looking at, I don't see it, because he sees Christ. Now, of course, God knows our record and what we've done, but he's chosen to ignore it and throw it as far as the east is from the west. And he would probably tell you, don't take on an identity that is not yours. And what he has for us is a spring of living water, verse 6. And it's the greatest inheritance is prepared for us. Now, did you look at verse 6? I hope you didn't pass right over a little phrase. It is done. Did you catch that? There's a beautiful parallel here. It should, I'm, I'm off, often when I teach Sunday school or youth group, I'll, I'll read something, I'll, I'll ask, hey, does that trigger your mind about anything else in Scripture? And so it should, we should hear Christ's words on the cross, it is finished, right? 
And I think it's so cool that John was there for both of those. Did you catch that? John was the only apostle, the only disciple that stayed for Jesus' crucifixion. So he heard Jesus say, it is finished. And now he's there in front of God's throne, hearing God say, it is done. And it's a little different here. Actually, the Greek for it is done is plural. So these things are done. And where Jesus, I think, is, there's a few things he's talking about, but his life and his redemptive work was finished on the cross. God is now saying that the rest of the work of redemption is done. Human history is over. The plan of salvation is complete. The sinful, rebellious humanity is cast away for good. The redeemed people have entered into eternity. And even if you don't know Greek, you probably know that Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters in the alphabet. And so he's actually repeating himself here. He says, I'm the beginning and the end. But on that authority that God is the source and the destination and the, the planner of all things and He who brings everything to fruition, He's always known and planned what history would look like. And now He's saying, it is done. It has come. So I hope at the very least, again, I... I think I stepped out on some branches that the scripture is silent on, tried to draw some conclusions, but I want to maybe knock out some ideas that you have of heaven. Hopefully it'll open up family dinner conversation. What do you guys think heaven will be like? I hope you have that conversation at some point. And I hope you delve in and try to think deeply about what, what it will be like and see it as a great motivation for our life here. And at the very least, if I've, if I've gone too far off the orthodox path, I hope that you hear we will have physical bodies in heaven. And we will be with Jesus, and heaven will be unbelievable. And all the people of God who long for that day said, Amen. Let's close as the music team comes up. Our final song. Father God, thank you for this text. Thank you for the way you wind up Revelation. Thank you for where we've been. Thank you that it ends with such a glorious picture of what you have planned for us. God, may we hope for heaven. I think if we have a dull, lifeless version of heaven, we're, we're even a little bit scared, apprehensive of what it's going to be like. But Lord, relying on your awesome, gracious character, Lord, we can trust that heaven will be amazing 
and that eternity will not be too long for us. We won't run out of things to do. We won't run out of being in awe of you. So Lord, enlarge our visions. Help us to take the scripture for truth. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.